because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. For today's episode, we are honored to have David Snell joining us. A little about David Snell. David Snell is a writer for Third Hour, and he's the host of the Faith and Beliefs um, section on Saints Unscripted. Thank you so much for joining us, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I guess to get started, let's, let's have you introduce yourself. Can we have a little bit of an idea of kind of your faith journey, as well as how you got interested in apologetics? Yeah, so I don't think that my faith journey is necessarily unique, um, in, particularly unique. I think there are a lot of people that are in my same boat. I was uh, born and raised in the church. I grew up in, in Oregon, uh, but but the, the gospel has been a part of my life, my entire life, and, uh, and that can can rub people the wrong way. I feel like outside of the church, cause they just kind of assume that, you know, you're, you're brainwashed or, or you only believe something because your parents believed it. But I mean, I think everyone that is born and raised in the church, hopefully you get to a point with your testimony where you really do have to decide what you're going to believe. Uh, and you really do have to pray about things and, and study things out in your mind as well. And so I've been on that journey as well, and I'm still here in the church. Um, as far as kind of apologetics go, I, I, I will preface this uh, conversation with this. I, I don't consider myself, you know, an, a, a quote unquote apologist. I don't consider myself a scholar. I, I, I have a degree a bachelor's degree in communications. Like I don't have a degree in ancient scripture. I'm not trained in, you know, Egyptology and history and all this stuff. So I guess one thing I want to get across is take what I say with a grain of salt, right? Like I'm just another member of the church who has done a lot of reading um, and a lot of thinking and a lot of praying and and sorting things out. but maybe that makes me a more relatable personality. I, I don't know. I hope it does. But um, I got kind of involved in this kind of world through Saints Unscripted as a host on that show. And uh, we kind of realized we needed... Um, so the main show is is just a talk show, right? Like we have different hosts on and we talk about things. It's it's unscripted, as you can tell from the name. But we kind of started to realize that we needed, um, there were a lot of people struggling with really sincere questions about controversial issues and whatnot. And we needed to find a more direct and, and concise way and an informed way of helping people with those things. So we started this faith and belief segment that I've been able to write for. And, and, um, and that has really, you know, pulled me into the world of apologetics. I, I guess you could say it's not only an apologetics segment, it's, you know, teaching about the plan of salvation and just basic doctrines of the church. But there is, I guess you could say a lot of uh, apologetic style content where we answer questions and address controversial issues. And, um, through that and writing for third hour, anytime you engage in a gospel dialogue online, you're going to find people who disagree with you and who maybe are more critical of your beliefs. And so through all of that kind of stuff, uh, I've, I've been kind of engrossed in, uh, in the controversial side of church history, both, I guess, um, from the last 200 years up till now, I guess, but uh, it's been a, a wild ride. It's been eye opening. Uh, and it's been hard at points and, um, there have been issues that I've had to grapple with 
just like any normal member of the church. And I, and I try and grapple with those things and, and come to a, a resolution or, or I at least try to come to terms with those things before I present on those issues. Right. Cause I don't want to be, you know, trying to help people with problems and questions that I haven't found peace with. I haven't come to terms with yet. So I think that's really important. Um, and just kind of through that process, I've come to where I am now. I, I'm a firm believer that when it comes to faith crisis and doubting and whatnot, I mean, you grow up in the church every month you hear in testimony meeting people saying, I know the church is true. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. I know the Book of Mormon is true. And that's great. And I hope they really do know that. And I'm sure that there are some people that, that do. Um, but I am a firm believer in belief, you know. I don't think that it's necessary to know everything. If, if that were the case, Christ would just appear on C-SPAN and be like, ha, ah, here I am, now you know, but, but he doesn't do that. So obviously he's after belief. And uh, that doesn't mean you have to blindly believe things. And there are plenty of rational reasons to back up, you know, Latter-day Saint beliefs. Um, but as far as my testimony goes, I'm very confident in my testimony, but I'm, I'm a believer. You know, I'm not a, I'm not necessarily a knower. I'm a believer and I'm not, you know, ashamed of that. I don't think that makes my testimony any weaker than, than someone else's. I think that's how it's, you know, supposed to be in, in, uh, in one sense. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of where I am. I, I firmly believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is Christ's restored church. I firmly believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. I firmly believe that the Book of Mormon is true. And, uh, and that's where I am. That's really powerful. Thanks for sharing your story. And I love that you highlight that believing isn't something we need to be ashamed of. Um, something that really stood out to me is about a year and a half ago, I was an EFY counselor and I was at a class and the teacher that was speaking is a really well-known religious educator someone that's written a lot of books and stuff. And while he was up there, he kind of just mentioned the story of someone asking him if he knows these things true. And he's just like, I don't know. I believe he's like, I know it's good, but I don't know. And I, for me, that was really a big deal. It was, it was kind of cool seeing this man that's a religious educator and he doesn't know, and he's not ashamed of it. I think as members of the church, it's okay if we don't know. Um, so I love that you highlight that. Um, for anyone that is curious, do you want to explain a little bit about what third hour is? Um, yeah, it's just kind of, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with LDS living, it's, it's kind of the same uh, idea as that. It's just, uh, it used to be called Mormon Hub until um, President Nelson talked about how we need to be using the correct name in the church and whatnot. So we changed it to third hour. Um and it's just a, a messaging website where you can find, you know, articles on all sorts of different things. It's not, it's not, you know, owned and directed by the church, right? So, so I mean, half the things that I publish, <laughs> if the if the church was directly in charge of me, I wouldn't be able to publish half the things I publish, just because of you know the topics I address and maybe the way I go about it, and I have a lot of personal opinions and whatnot, but yeah. So I have written for third hour for a while. Um, I, that's, that's kind of been waning over the last, uh, over 2020, I guess I'm, I'm more involved in the, the faith and beliefs, saints unscripted, um, writing side of things right now, but, but yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, that answers. I just wanted to kind of clarify that for our audience if anyone was curious. So thanks for explaining that. Um, so in this podcast, one of the things that I really want to do is I want to address critical issues in an open but faithful way. Um, some of my favorite scholars are Mike Ash and Dan Peterson. And some of the things that they've mentioned is that a lot of the time when um, if we're exposed to critical issues from a more faithful perspective, it's going to be hard, but a lot of time we can grapple with these issues. But if we hear these things from another source, it can often lead to a lot of cognitive dissonance and kind of the feeling that we've been betrayed. So today we're going to talk about some controversial issues and some things that 
probably a lot of our listeners haven't heard about. Um, today we're going to be talking about Brigham Young and some of his more controversial teachings. And before we do that, I just want to maybe ask David, like, how can we have correct expectations as we look at some of our past prophets? I think that critical thinking is really important, right? Like the simple, so, so I think a lot of people grow up in the church, you know, singing praise to the man and, and follow the prophet in primary. And we read stories about the faithfulness of Nephi and the courage of Captain Moroni. And we see all these great things, miraculous things happening in the scriptures. And we get this idea that is totally wrong that prophets are infallible, or that, that they're infallible, right? That they can do no wrong, that they're perfect, and that their their connection with God is so ridiculously strong that they're never going to do anything wrong. And and that is just if you have that expectation, you're going to have a really hard time learning about church history, even reading the church's new history books, saints. Uh, it's going to be really hard for you because the fact is prophets aren't and are, they weren't and they aren't perfect, right? They make mistakes. They're very human. They are products of their culture. Um, and if it, when it comes to expectations about prophets, if you can get that in your head that they're not perfect and that not only will mistakes happen, but but like they have happened and we need to expect them to be there then that solves, you know, half of all of the criticisms against the church, right? Um, Oh, what what else was I going to say? Oh, I was going to mention, like, it took me a long time to kind of realize that the scriptures are like the prophet's greatest hits albums, right? Like, it's their, their best moments. If we had as much information about the lives of of ancient prophets as we do about the lives of modern prophets, then I think we'd very quickly find plenty to, to criticize, right. Or plenty of things to take issue with, even as it is, there are things we can take issue with, but I, I just like the idea that the scriptures are the prophets greatest hits album. It's like the beach boys love their greatest hits album, but that's not all there is to them. You know, maybe the greatest hits are all you hear, but then you get into their album Pet Sounds and you're like, okay, this is some weird stuff. It doesn't mean their greatest hits never happened, but it gives you some more context and, and fleshes out their their uh, character and humanity a little bit more. Thank you. I, I think that's really helpful for our audience to hear going into this. So one of those lesser known hits um, from Brigham Young for members of the church um, for a lot of members is blood atonement. Do you want to explain what that is and some of the details regarding what this idea of blood atonement was? Sure. So to put it uh, as simply as I can, blood atonement was essentially the idea that um, some sins were so bad, so heinous that the atonement of Christ wouldn't cover them. And the only way to atone for them was to have your own blood spilled to willingly have your own blood spilled. Um, And this was a principle mentioned and and taught, so to speak, by Brigham Young on probably four or five or six occasions from what I've found. Um, What happens is that I I really like what you said uh, a minute ago about sources, about where you're getting this information from. What I've found is that when you hear about things like blood atonement from a critical perspective, um, and and to be clear, like we should be critical of blood atonement, like it's not a true principle, right? I'm just going to come right out and say that uh, the way that Brigham Young was teaching it at least. And, but when it comes from a critical perspective, oftentimes what I've seen is that it, it, these things get brought, carried to their worst possible conclusion and rumors become facts and uh, things become embellished and exaggerated. Um, Blood Atonement was written about in in fiction novels uh, plenty of times back in the 
18th or uh, 19th and 20th century, um, people thought that, you know, Utah, Utah was a fairly isolated community, not because they wouldn't allow other people in, they did, but it was just out in the Rocky Mountains away from the rest of the United States. And uh, so rumors in the rest of the United States swirled about this, you know, community in Utah. And, you know, people were getting blood atoned left and right. People were getting killed. Um, and it just became this huge thing. Now, again, blood atonement isn't a, a, a correct principle, as was taught by Brigham Young. But there's no evidence, no hard evidence that anyone was ever actually blood atoned. Right. And I think that that's a really important point to make um, because it kind of shows how the teaching was received by the people. Right. With Brigham Young, he he said a lot of stuff. He said some controversial stuff. They didn't have, you know, correlation like we do nowadays, where they're a little bit more careful about uh, what they teach publicly because of, you know, things that have happened in the past. But uh, oftentimes Brigham Young would speak. Uh, extemporaneously. And he has even said to the people preaching, he said, you know, I know I've made mistakes and I want you guys to go to the Lord and, and ask him to confirm the things I'm teaching. Um, so I, I don't think it's fair to say, to push this expectation on Brigham Young that he'll never make a mistake in his teaching when that was an expectation that Brigham Young didn't have for himself, Right. Um, and when it comes to blood atonement, um, what was I going to say? I had another point to make about blood atonement. Do you have any thoughts? You can interrupt me if you'd like before I continue. I think the important things, and you may have mentioned this already, is just that like this is a, something that um, the, princ the principle that Brigham was teaching is that people would voluntarily have their blood spilled. So right. it's important, like we we like kind of we separate that from like capital punishment this isn't like the apostles weren't going out and killing people and like not right like we don't even have that people were blood atoned but people like if it were to happen it would be people voluntarily going forth because they wanted forgiveness right that that's thank you for bringing that up that's something that needs to be mentioned um in a lot of the rumors that swirl around about this like Brigham Young is actively like basically putting out hits on people. That's, that's how it, that's how blood atonement is talked about that uh, apostates were being hunted down and killed. But yeah, you bring up a good point that uh, the idea was that you needed to willingly come forward and, and have your blood shed. And I also talking about capital punishment, uh, people were pretty liberal with, with capital punishment during Brigham Young's era, Brigham Young himself had quite a, a broad, um, no, let me restate this. Brigham Young advocated for the, the death penalty or capital punishment, at least informally in his personal opinion, sometimes um, he, he, he was willing to have that punishment dealt towards uh, he was willing to have that punishment be a result of a quite a wide range of, of crimes. Like uh, the one that comes to mind is theft, stealing. I think there's a quote or two from Brigham Young talking about how, you know, those people should just be put to death and whatnot. And it's important to separate his opinions on capital punishment from blood atonement because they aren't the same thing. And I've seen lists of that critics have created of, all of the things that would be worthy of blood atonement. Um, and when you look at the sources for that list, a lot of them don't apply to blood atonement at all. They, they might apply to capital punishment where they committed a crime and Brigham Young believed that they should, you know, they should face capital punishment for that crime. But that's very different from the principle of blood atonement. Now, since Brigham Young taught that, um, of course it has caused controversy and, there's been confusion inside and outside the church because of it. Uh, but it's a, it's a principle that has been disavowed by the church. Now, if your expectation of a prophet is that he will never make a mistake, then blood atonement is a real problem for you. If you accept the fact that they can have their own 
personal opinions and interpretations of scripture and whatnot. And speaking of which, I mean, the scriptures do talk about unpardonable sins, right? So that's not the, or unforgivable sins. That's not the the problem. It's more the application of, of, uh, of that principle. But, but if you believe that prophets can make mistakes, then this isn't as big of an issue. It's still something that you can have questions about. Like there's no problem with having questions about it because it's a weird thing to be teaching. Um, but it's something you can at least come to terms with. And I guess relating to blood atonement, there are two questions I have about it is what are some of the sins that um, in Brigham's eyes were worthy of blood atonement, like having to have your blood spilt to receive forgiveness. And then my next question is how did his fellow apostles feel about this teaching? Were there, were there support? Were there, who were some people that maybe spoke out against it? So, boy, I'm trying to remember. I'm sure I covered these questions more accurately in the faith and beliefs episode that I've done on it. So if you, if you want probably the most accurate information on those questions, go see that. Um, I'll post a link in the description for anyone that's that's curious. Great. Um, The one that I remember um, the one quote unquote sin that I remember him preaching about that would be a, a punishable by blood atonement was interracial marriage, which obviously to our modern sensibilities sounds horrible and it is horrible. Um, but we need to be careful of, of some presentism there and remember that, you know, finding someone back in Brigham Young's day that didn't have more or less racist sensibilities, that would have been a really hard thing to do. Like if, if God was looking for a, a, a prophet that didn't have uh, some racial prejudice, that uh, that really would have narrowed down his options quite a bit, I think. Uh, that's the, the one I remember. There are a few more, um, like I'm pretty sure like murder was one of them, which isn't altogether all that shocking. So like people don't worry about that one too much. It's more of the controversial ones like interracial marriage where people get kind of uptight and justifiably so. Um, As far as people supporting or not supporting it, I don't remember any specific names. I know Orson Pratt, he opposed Brigham Young on a few different teachings. Uh, He opposed his views on the priesthood ban which I don't know if we're going to talk about. We don't need to talk about that in that, this episode, but if you're familiar with that issue, then that's relevant. He opposed Brigham Young on uh, Adam God theory, which we may discuss. Um, but I, I don't remember if he opposed him on uh, blood atonement. But the fact is that this was really a principle that was only taught, you know, mentioned uh, around five times. So it's not something that's super prevalent in Brigham Young's early teaching. And there was also an understanding among the saints that, you know, oh, it's just Brigham Young, you know, not all the time, but they understood that Brigham Young kind of uh, was, was, uh, he wasn't afraid to just talk, you know, and the saints understood that. And I think that's one of the reasons why when it comes to actual evidence, we don't see anything hard. uh, We don't see hard evidence about blood atonement. I think that shows that the saints understood that this was just maybe something Joseph or that Brigham was saying to kind of rile people up and get them to repent. It was during a time when uh, preachers were very vigorous in in uh, their language when they were when they were trying to get people to repent, and it was kind of a in general that style of preaching was it kind of came, kind of came across as a bit fear tacticy. Like, I'm going to freak you out to drive you towards repentance. Um, and that may have been one of the, the factors involved in, in his teachings on this. But it wasn't something that it appears from the historic record that the saints took very seriously. Um, but of course, the optics of it are, are not good. And if it's a principle that, that Brigham Young, you know, actually believed in, even though it doesn't seem he enforced it, which I'm very grateful for, uh, if it is something that he really truly believed in, then then that's, you know, fine to be troubled about. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't a prophet. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, thanks for sharing. I think that's really helpful. Um, something that you you bring up in your your video on faith and beliefs about what a tome is. You mentioned that out of Brigham Young's 390 speeches in Journal of Discourses, only five of them clearly talk about blood atonement. So I think that kind of gives people a little bit of an idea, like this isn't like one of his main teachings. And I like what you said about how the people would have understood Brigham according to that time period. I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and I think that um, one of those five, I don't remember if it was one of those five or maybe a sixth one, um, that I discovered, I think after we published this video, uh, or, or after I wrote the script at least and filmed it, uh, he made a mention of it in, uh, the legislature, I believe, because Brigham Young wore a few different hats. He was prophet, but he was also governor of, of the territory for a while. Um, and, and he was fine with mixing those roles, um, but for the saints and for us, it can be kind of difficult to figure out when he's speaking as, you know, a governor, when he's speaking as a prophet, when he's speaking as Brigham Young. Um, that's not necessarily super relevant to this discussion, but, but I just wanted to point out that, yes, some of his mentions of blood atonement were in ecclesiastical settings from the pulpit, and some were more governmental settings. That's really helpful. And once again, we'll make sure to post the uh, description and again, a, a link for his video on that in the description. Um, but the next issue we want to talk about is the Adam God theory. And this is another one of those really kind of complex matters where I think a lot of the time we, we have a hard time with mistakes being made by the brethren. But at the same time, I think we're like, OK, maybe there's mistakes, but there'll be mistakes on little things. But I think this is kind of a hard one because it's part of the doctrine of the Godhead, a huge doctrine that Brigham Young may have had some major misunderstandings on. So could you explain what the Adam-God theory is? Yeah, the theory is quite simple. It's, it's just the idea that, uh, so Brigham Young taught on occasion, including, I think, uh, in the, the St. George Temple, uh, back then during temple ceremonies, there would be uh, kind of an instructional period discourse talk thing um, during the endowment that we don't have anymore. But um, there and a few other places he taught that Adam, or it appears he taught this, we're actually not quite sure what he meant by it, but he taught, it seems that he taught that Adam as in Adam and Eve was God the Father in human form. Now, the problem with that, obviously, is one, that it's not true, but also, um, well, maybe that was the only, <laughs> maybe that was the only point I wanted to make. It's not true. Um, oh, the, but the other problem is that on other occasions, Brigham Young did teach that Adam was very separate from God. And you find that as time went on, and this topic gets brought up more and more, his language kind of seems to soften and he's less like adamant about it. And it seems to become more opinion-based. Um, and again, the topic doesn't come up a whole lot in the historic record as far as I recall. Um, but when it comes to kind of reconciling that, I mean, if you think about it, I think it, it's fine to be concerned with this. And um, and the question is valid, like, okay, well, he's a prophet of God. Shouldn't he, you know, have this magnificent understanding of the nature of the Godhead, right? How could he get this wrong? Well, and then I think about the brother of Jared, who in the book of Ether goes on top of a mountain he has this interchange with God and then God parts the veil and uh, his hand comes through the veil to, to touch the, the stones, right? To, to create light in the stones for the, the barges that the brother of Jared is creating for his people. Do you remember, Ryan, what happens when, when the Lord reaches his hand through the veil? How does, how does the brother of Jared react? Do you remember? Um, I think he was like, he was surprised and 
I don't, I don't exactly remember the details. Yeah. Well, you're right though. Like he was, he was shocked and he was a little bit afraid. His general, general reaction to seeing the hand of God was, holy cow. I didn't know that, you know, you had flesh and bone or, or that you were to in the future have flesh and bone. Like he was confused about the nature of the Godhead essentially is what we're getting at. He was a prophet, but there were things he didn't know. And that was okay. And, and God, you know, took that time to teach him. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, a prophet must have this perfect understanding of the nature of the Godhead. I think that Brigham Young was forming his own opinions and making his own speculatory remarks on what he thought, uh, how he thought things were. And he, he was wrong about that. And I don't think that that's, that, that doesn't, I wish it hadn't happened, but it's not something that, you know, particularly shakes my, my testimony at this point. Thank you for that. And I wanted to share a quote by Bruce McConkie that talks a little bit about the Adam God theory. Sure. Um, so Bruce McConkie said, what I am saying is that Brigham Young contradicts Brigham Young and the issue becomes one of which Brigham Young we will believe. The answer is we believe the expressions that accord with the teachings in the standard works. And I think exactly. that's really powerful. And um, just this idea that like, where it can kind of be confusing is a lot of the time Brigham Young taught that Adam and God were separate people, but then we have, other accounts that contradict that. So it's, there seems to be two Brighams at times. Um, and also you mentioned this earlier, but I think it's, it's really important that we point out that Orson Pratt adamantly opposed this teaching and stuff. And I yeah. think like when, when our apostles reveal doctrine and stuff, I think when there's this agreement among the, the 15, I think there can be a lot of confidence in that. But I think we can have a lot less confidence when the brethren are in agreement with things. I think that's a really important to point out. Yeah, I definitely agree. Thank you for sharing that quote. I think that's one that I share in the episode um, that I'm, we made on this. Um, but yeah, it's a, it reminds me of Elder Anderson, I believe, who was the one who said a while back in General Conference something to the effect of, if you're looking for Latter-day Saint doctrine, you know, you're not going to find it in a few obscure lines from a talk from 200 years ago, you know, like it's something that's going to be open and out there and taught by the first presidency and quorum of the 12. Um, and, and I think the Adam God theory is a great example of something that was just kind of out of left field that uh, didn't really catch on because it wasn't true, you know? I mean, that's not to say that things that aren't true can't catch on, but but this was an idea that didn't catch on um, and that has been disavowed since then. And I think just more represents Brigham's opinions than, than revealed doctrine. Yeah, and I think we we have this perspective where I think we, we view the brethren from how we see them today. And today they're the prophet and the apostles, they don't share their theories that much. They don't share their, their opinions publicly as much as they used to. And I think we forget that in the early days of a church, doctrine still, it's still being established heavily. And we forget that they were very open about sharing their views on different things, even if it was just their opinions. I think that's really important to keep in consideration. Yeah. And I think also having a wider perspective on things like if we're talking about prophetic fallibility and mistakes that prophets have made in the past, I mean, if you have, if you believe in the Bible, my opinion is that you should not expect perfection from prophets, right? Again, the scriptures I think are the prophets greatest hits albums, uh, but we can still see, you know, things that are like, Oh, I don't know if, I don't know if that was, you know, the right thing to do or to say. And, and we have to reconcile those things, right? And the same thing happens with Latter-day Saint history. You might read some things and you go, oh, I don't know if he should have said that or done that. 
and you have to reconcile them. Now, I, that's not to say that you shouldn't have questions and that these aren't challenging issues. Like I think people that have questions and struggle with these things, uh, we can validate them. Like you should have some, some cognitive dissonance over these things and, and work to reconcile them. But, you know, if you turn to the Bible again, like uh, who was it? Eli Elijah? Uh, he has this, you know, flexing contest with prophets of Baal and he wins. And then he hunts down 400 opposing priests and prophets uh, from this, this other religion and kills them, right? Like if Brigham Young had done that, holy cow, we'd never hear the end of it. But because it happens in the Bible, people are like, okay, you know, different times, different methods, and, and they kind of reconcile it. Um, but like things happen, things, things happen in scripture that, that should cause some cognitive dissonance. Um, and that's okay. And, and we just need to work on reconciling them and, and remember that, you know, nobody's, nobody's perfect. And I think a really important principle to remember in all of this is, well, you know what? I'm not going to talk about it yet. I'm going to bring it up later, but we can, we can move on to whatever you want to talk about now and I'll bring it up later. Okay. We'll have you bring that pretty soon on. Okay. One of the things I think sometimes we put like a magnifying glass on all these flaws of Brigham Young, where I think even in the church, we can see like, Oh, we love, we love Joseph. We love the modern day prophets. But like sometimes like we don't provide Brigham the grace that I think he deserves. Um, what are some like the amazing aspects of Brigham Young as a leader and as a prophet, whether it be things he taught or just who he was as a person? Well, I will say this. I've spent a lot more time. I think you're right. I think we put a magnifying glass over people's faults and I've spent a lot more time reconciling and, and diving into Brigham's faults than I have his virtues, right? And I will admit that on my Christmas list this year, 2020, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but on my 2020 Christmas list are one or two uh, biographies on Brigham Young's life, because personally, I would like to learn a little bit more about him. I want to know what his virtues are instead of just focusing on the negative things. Um, I would say that the negative things, again, have been while, while they are negative, they are unquestionably, there, there are unquestionably negative aspects to him. I will say that I feel like critics have blown them way out of proportion and embellished them and uh, exaggerated them to the point where uh, Brigham Young was, is widely considered a villain. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons why that happened in in eras past, uh, you can get into the statehood of Utah. You can get into uh, the United States views on polygamy and whatnot. They have reasons to villainize Brigham Young. And I think those reasons have stuck around to today. But I mean, the guy managed to lead the church from Illinois, Nauvoo, Illinois, where they were, you know, in ruins, not in ruins, but struggling with the murder of Joseph Smith and he's able to rally them and lead them across the country and found a city. If that hadn't happened, I don't even know if I would have been born, you know, like, like that, the, the fabric of the country would be drastically changed. The map of the country would be drastically changed. Um, but just the, the simple fact that he was able to do that and start a city in the middle of the desert. I live in Utah, so I'm a little bitter about uh, the, the choice of location here. I love the mountains, but it's just, it's Why a, it's a California? <laughs> <laughs> But the fact that he was able to transplant people to here and uh, help this part of the, the country flourish as much as it has, I think is amazing. I often look at, Joseph Smith as, uh, again, prophets are, are each have their own personalities, their own strengths and their own weaknesses. I look at Joseph Smith as very doctrinally 
oriented. Uh, the revelations he received are incredible. Um, the, the connection he had with God, you've got the Book of Mormon, you've got the Pearl of Great Price, you've got the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and then you look at Brigham Young, who seemed to have a very different role. And it seemed like, it's almost as if God was like, okay, Joseph has accomplished the things that he can accomplish. And now we need Brigham Young for this next phase of development, which was moving this. It's, it's, it's almost a very practical um, purpose that Brigham Young, I feel like had. And that was moving the saints, you know, from Nauvoo to Salt Lake and building a city from very, very little sending out colonizers to other areas of the United States, St. George, Mexico, California. Um, that in and of itself is, is a magnificent feat. And I do think that um, Brigham Young had some soft spots. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could give you some quotes on exactly what those soft spots were, but I'll let you know after I read his biography. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for sharing those things. And I know one of the things I've heard about Brigham, he's someone that I need to read more about him as well, but I've heard for his time period, he treated Native Americans really, really well compared to other people of his time. That's one thing that I have heard, but I still, I definitely need to read more of his positive attributes as well. Yeah, that's something I've, I've heard as well. And I think relatively speaking, that's probably true. There are, of course, controversial events um, with the Native Americans as well. Um, I mean, I live in Utah. I, I can see Squaw Peak from where I live. And if you kind of know some of the folklore history about that, then you know a little bit about the controversy uh, between Native Americans and Latter-day Saints in the area. But in general, I think that the idea that uh, Native Americans had some... Um, Lamanite heritage, I think that idea kind of helped them to see them a little bit in a kinder light because they felt like they had a responsibility to bring the gospel to them and uh, things like that. I, I haven't done a whole lot of research on that, but yeah, I think generally your, your impressions are right. The next thing I wanted to just discuss kind of for the end of the interview is what kind of advice do you have for people with doubts and questions, whether that's a framework to look for questions or just, yeah, what are some things that help you in your journey with, as you wrestle with these things? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing that I'd want people to know is that it's okay. Um, I think there's this idea in the church that, leaving the church is, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person. Like, like not accepting the gospel is, is just awful and you're going to get disowned by your family and all this stuff. And of course we don't want people to leave the church, but, and maybe this is a message more towards those whose friends or family members are doubting uh, than to the doubters themselves. But more than any other faith, I think that we should be okay with people going through a faith crisis and even if they leave the church. Because according to our doctrine in the eternities, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen to these people is they go to heaven where they will, you know, be happy. It may not be the celestial kingdom. It could be the telestial or the terrestrial kingdom. But again, those are places where people can be happy and will be ministered to by Christ and or the Holy Ghost. Whereas in many other faiths, you know, if you leave the faith, if you deny the gospel or whatever, you're going straight to hell and you're going to burn there for eternity. You're going to be tortured, suffer anguish for eternity. That if someone wants to leave, the, if I believe that and someone wants to leave my church, I'm thrown into a panic, right? Because they're going to be there for eternity. But in our faith, you know, we still believe that they can be happy. Of course, we want them to accept the gospel and, and uh, all this stuff. But, but, you know, it's not the end all be all. 
So I think that we need to be understanding of people with questions and people who end up leaving the faith. We need to love them. We need to um, validate their questions because there are tough questions and that's totally fine. You don't have to know in order to be a member of the church. You can just believe. Um, so I think that we need to, to treat people that are suffering well, not just because we want them to come back to the church or whatever, but because we love them and we love everyone. And so we need to treat them as Christ would. Second, I would say for those that are going through a faith crisis um, or have doubts and questions about the gospel or the church or whatever, um, I would say don't panic because a lot of uh, maybe antagonistic material is designed to get you to panic. It's designed to overwhelm your mind with so much cognitive dissonance that it forces you to be like, oh my gosh, I don't have answers for these questions right now. And it doesn't make sense for me to be a member of the church anymore. I have to leave it all behind right now and move on to my next phase of life. I would say, don't panic. Any of these criticisms that are brought up to you, uh, they're, they're very likely not new. And there are answers for them. And there are ways that people reconcile them. There, there may not be answers for all of them. You know, uh, the, the priesthood ban. I don't know exactly what's going on there. Polygamy. I don't know what's going on uh, there to be sure. Um, but there are ways people can reconcile them and live with them and find reasons to have faith uh, that allow you to, to, to remain in the church until further light and knowledge does come on the things you don't have answers for. Now, the third thing I would say, and this is a relatively recent idea for, for me or a relatively recent phrase that has just kind of been bouncing around in my mind. Um, but the idea that kind of brings some comfort to me is God is perfect, but he's not a perfectionist. And when I say that, I think about um, Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants, when he's talking about his translation of some uh, Old Testament scriptures, he talks about Malachi and he says, you know, I could have given a more clear translation of this verse, but it is sufficiently clear to suit my purposes as it stands. That's not an exact quote. You could probably find the scripture uh, in Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about this. But I think that oftentimes, while God is perfect, he's not working with perfect people. And I don't think he's worried about creating perfection in this life. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe God uh, on the subject of Brigham Young, I don't speak for God, of course, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, you know, I could have picked a prophet that was less of a loose cannon than Brigham Young, but he was sufficient to suit my purposes as, as they stood. I could have um, given Joseph Smith a perfect memory so that he would recall the first vision account uh, perfectly every time he talked about it. But uh, he was, you know, his memory was good enough as it stood is, is, and I'm okay with it, you know? I think he's he's okay with imperfection. I mean, even when he created the world, right? Like he creates one thing and um, he doesn't say it is perfect. He says it is good, right? I don't think he's looking for perfection. I think he's looking for, for goodness. I think he's looking for uh, tools while... They may be imperfect. He's looking for tools that are willing and able to, to do the work, to, to accomplish what he needs to be accomplished. Will it be perfect? I don't think so. Will it be good enough? Yeah, I think so. Anyways, I think that's just an important, an, an important idea that, that uh, helps me kind of get through some tough questions. I really like that idea of, yeah, God, he is perfect, but he isn't a perfectionist. I never thought about it before, but I really like it that way. Um, yeah, I think sometimes we think of like God is like holding this like remote control and he's like 
just controlling the profit that way. But yeah, we, God doesn't have remote control profits. Um, God's going to work through what he has. And I think if Brigham or Joseph Smith or whoever, if they were good enough for God, I think, I think they should be good enough for us, even though they have their weaknesses. And I think it shows that despite whatever weaknesses we have, whatever perfection, whatever imperfections we have, any bad habits we're dealing with, that God can still work through us if we're willing to. Yeah. Um, just in closing, is there anything else you want to bring up to our audience? I would say, uh, I think one more, one more principle that kind of plays along with that um, can be learned from the story of the 116 lost pages. We find something, God does something really interesting there because Joseph Smith approaches the Lord and he says, Martin Harris wants to take the manuscript of the Book of Mormon back home to show his wife and some family members. Is that okay? And God says, no, that's, that's not okay. And then a little later, Joseph approaches the Lord again and says, this is what I would like to do. This is what Martin wants to do. Is that okay? The Lord again says, no, it's not okay to do that. And then a third time, Joseph approaches the Lord for the same reason. Is this okay, Lord? And finally, God says, you know what? Fine, do it. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And we're going to see how it turns out, right? And we see the human will of Joseph Smith uh, being accommodated into the will of God. Even though God knows exactly how it's going to turn out, he knows that it's going to be a failure. He says, you know what? If that's what you want, fine. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord does the same things in, in different scenarios. You know, if Brigham Young was adamant, he was like, you know what, I've been doing my research, God, and I think that that uh, that uh, this Adam-God theory is, is true. And maybe Brigham Young's will was so strong that the Lord finally said, you know what, Brigham, if that's what you believe, you can teach that, but you're going to see in time how it goes. And, and we have. So uh, again, I, I think the Lord, I think God is perfect. I know I, I will acknowledge right here that I'm mixing terms, uh, the Lord being Jesus Christ and maybe God the Father. So forgive me for that. But I think God is perfect, but he's not after perfectionism. And uh, as long as his overarching purposes are, are met, I think he moves forward despite the weaknesses of the tools he works through. Thank you so much. I think that's really helpful. Um, we're really grateful that we've been able to have David on. He's given us lots of things to think about. Um, if anyone's interested in doing further research to these topics, I'll be posting some links in the description and feel free to reach out if you need anything. Thanks for joining us. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next week.